looking for greater self-acceptance, a way to connect deeper and more authentically with the people you love? Do you want to hear me say the word curmudgeon? Then tune in right here, right now with Grant Brenner on Polly Campbell Simply Said. Hello, 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 and welcome to Polly Campbell Simply Said, the podcast where we talk about how to live well, do good, and be happy. But how can we do that when we have trauma, when we're experiencing emotional upset and the barriers that can keep us stuck? Trauma is a word I hear a lot these days. In the past, it it seemed like it was used primarily for victims of violent crimes and abuse, prisoners of war. But now it's out there more. And that's left me with a lot of questions. What is trauma really? What is the nature of it? Do we all experience trauma? And if so, can we learn to live well with it? Well, today we're going to answer some of those questions. We have Dr. Grant Brenner here. Dr. Brenner is a psychiatrist, author, speaker who nearly two, who for nearly two decades has helped patients to overcome emotional obstacles. He's a fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, the New York Academy of Medicine, on the faculty of Mount Sinai Beth Israel Hospital, the former director of trauma and everything else. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brenner. Hi, thanks for having me, Polly. Thanks for being here. Feel free to call me Grant if that works for you. Dr. Brenner is also the co-author with Dr. Mark Borg and registered nurse Daniel Berry of the book, Making Your Crazy Work for You from Trauma and Isolation to Self-Acceptance and Love. Do we all have some kind of crazy? I, I see that and hear that in the title of your book. Do we all have some kind of trauma that we're living with? Well, those are two different questions. Okay. Um, I, I think the answer, you know, it depends how you define things. The answer to the first one, you know, does everyone have a little bit of crazy? Probably not, but I think most of us do. Um, we have this creative side, most of us, not everyone. Um, life is so full of uncertainties. Um, there's so much in our own existences that we can't quite pin down, Um you know, and we're using the word crazy in a, a lot of different ways. There's kind of the negative use of the word, and we're not talking about mental illness, right? We're we're using this term in a colloquial sense um, and kind of reclaiming it. So the way we talk about crazy in the book is doing the same thing over and over and expecting something different to happen. Um, but then there's also the good crazy, which is like, I'm crazy about this person I just met, or I'm like crazy about photography. Like I, I like, I love photography. Check out my photography. Um, I love I love that. And the creative process for me is kind of the good kind of crazy where you're opening up to many, many possibilities. And a lot of times, right, we're raised with kind of blinders and we learn to inhibit ourselves um, or, you know, be inauthentic or artificial in some way. On your second question, yet not not everyone experiences trauma, but rates rates of trauma are fairly high in the population. As, as defined by like a number of specific things that people can experience. Um, anything ranging from things like, you know, accidents and natural disasters to abuse, neglect. Um, and there's a whole, you know, there's a whole way of measuring those things uh, formally. However, a very small percentage of people who experience trauma actually develop uh, clinical problems from it. So rates of post-traumatic stress disorder are less than 10%. A bit hmm. higher in women than men, but while rates of trauma may may be forty to seventy percent, depending on estimates, 
So it's really a very, a very small percentage of people develop post-traumatic stress disorder, and most people are resilient and have so-called normal responses to trauma. However, even if people don't have PTSD, it doesn't mean that there are traumatic or adverse experiences, difficult life experiences, challenges don't influence who they are. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So we can face these difficult experiences. We may not take it in as PTSD or have it be a lasting experience of trauma in our life, but it doesn't mean it hasn't shaped us then. Right, right. Yeah, things, yeah, they can shape us. And I guess the question is, even if it doesn't sort of meet diagnostic criteria as a psychiatric disorder, you know, how does it affect us, you know, in, in positive ways and negative ways? And our, our work is about uh, kind of spinning flax into gold, kind of making the most out of those experiences. And I love your definition of crazy. And I, I feel both of those things almost every day, right? I, I just feel this energy around my creative work or the things that I'm really excited about. And I feel a little loose ends with the uncertainty that happens from being a mother or being in a post-pandemic world, if there is such a thing. And, you know, all of that. Do you think we're talking about it more, this form of crazy and this this trauma do you think people are more upfront about but are are we becoming more aware of these things yeah i think you're right to kind of view them together in that regard and i think the pendulum swings back and forth and i i think we're we're in a pendulum swing where people are much aware much more aware of both the 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 sort of pathological aspects of things as well as the more aspirational personal development aspect of things um, if if you look at the industry of like personal growth, you know, wellness, um, it's huge. And if you look at the pandemic, the me- mental health awareness and destigmatizing has been ramping up even before then. You can see that people who are, you know, Hollywood stars, politicians, um, social media influencers, sometimes for better or for worse, are much more open about these things. So the stigma is much lower, um, you know, and the world is in this kind of crazy state that it hasn't been in a long time. Um, you know, but but it has in the past been there. So, you know, I'm I'm old enough to remember, you know, back in the 70s that this was also on the surface at that time. Like people were very much about self-actualization and pushing the limits of their experience and questioning the the societal norms uh and and things like that. So I think we're back there again. And then, you know, we also are interested in psychedelic treatments in psychiatry. There's a huge sort of huge buzz on that. Um, And then I'd say even in in the media, right? Like um, if you look at the kinds of shows that are popular on major entertainment channels, they really push the envelope on so many different levels, many of which are incredibly imaginative and disturbing. And a lot of which actually depict, you know, psychotherapy, right? Or mental illness directly. Do you think those are good things? And my next question was going to be, what did this, where did this book come from? But I I think you just answered it. Like, these are topics that we're all thinking about and talking about and trying to learn to live with better, it feels like. Is that accurate? I think that's right. I I think in a sense, I don't know if, if, you know, collectively we're right fully there, but I think we're pretty close to sort of a singularity where we realize that we need we need to do something different, uh, to put it really vaguely. And you, you see it in healthcare, you know, because the, the need for mental health care is really evident. And so 
there, I think I think it's pretty clear. People are trying to solve that problem. On a cultural level, I think people are way more open also. There's much more exploration right now of identity and and there's a lot of pushback. Yeah, the, it, it seems like both of those are, are it, I think of it like the ocean when when it's going, you know, being dragged out to sea and there's that ripple. It feels like that to me too, that there's, there's people like me who are totally fascinated. I've always had therapy. I really believe in learning and growing. And then there's people that still aren't there and, and we're kind of meeting in the middle of these topics. So it feels a little more volatile around some of those things too. It's an interesting time. In your book, which I found very hopeful, right? Like we don't have to live blocked by our barriers. There, there are ways we can learn to work through these. You talk about an irrelationship cycle. What does that mean? Okay. So in our first book, and you know, that's where this started, irrelationship, how we use dysfunctional relationships to hide from intimacy. It was really about our relationships with other people. Whereas making your crazy work for you is about one's relationship with oneself, my relationship with me, um, or the different sides of myself and making room for all that. The irrelationship cycle that we talk about, let's say typically in, in a romantic couple, one person is the performer and the other person is the audience. And they've both grown up in situations where their parents may not have been completely available for them. And so as children, they learn to do whatever they need to prop up their caregivers. And we talk about the grafts patterns, which is being good, right, absent, staying out of the way, funny, you know, being an entertainer, tense, walking on eggshells, smart, you know, being being like getting good grades, having a good job. And so kids who grow up in these kind of uh, adverse or somewhat traumatic developmental environments develop these patterns in intimate relationships where they're they're performing, doing a good job. In the irrelationship cycle, you see couples play that out. And you see it in friendships and you see it in work, but a lot of it is focused on, on romantic relationships at, at first. And so one person will try really hard to make it look like they're doing everything they can do to cultivate a healthy, close relationship. And they're kind of trying to prove to the other person that they love them and care about them. And the other person is, is kind of... Um, they seem to be playing along with it, but nothing works. They're the audience in in the in the tip in the kind of typical pattern we see, and so nothing is ever good enough, and so it becomes a vicious cycle where the performer tries harder and harder and harder, and the audience's job is is kind of it doesn't really work, but what they're playing along with together is that to the outside observer, you know, and to themselves, it looks like they're both trying really really hard to make it work, get closer. And they probably both really want to be close, um, but they're doing it in these ways which actually drive them apart. And that's the that's the irrelationship cycle. And when you talk about driving them apart, they're they're blocking themselves. Then I'm blocking myself or my partner or whoever from getting closer, from being truer, more authentically me, and and allowing myself to share that with the other person. Yeah, it, it gets in the way of being able to open up and be vulnerable, which is, you know, necessary for intimacy. And so there's a sense of unsafety, which is often unconscious. And then there, it, it drives these patterns that on the surface, we, we in the book, we call them song and dance routines. They look like you're doing what you're supposed to do, but it's not actually creating the space for the two people to really be vulnerable and connect. 
That's so interesting to me. We go out and we do our thing, but then behind closed doors, we're not either feeling like we're connecting or getting what we need. I want to talk about some ideas for managing this and learning about this more. We're going to take a quick break. We're with Dr. Grant Brenner, author of Making Your Crazy Work For You, From Trauma and Isolation to Self-Acceptance and Love. We're going to take a quick break right here on Polly Campbell Simply Said on the Best Business Network of Electricast. And we are back. Hello, I'm Polly. You're listening to Polly Campbell Simply Said, the podcast where we talk about how to live well, do good, and be happy. And we are on the best business network of Electricast. Today, we're talking with the co-author of Making Your Crazy Work For You, From Trauma and Isolation to Self-Acceptance and Love, psychiatrist Dr. Grant Brenner. And he says I can call him Grant, so... I'm going to do that. I'm not being disrespectful. But Grant, before we went to break, we were talking about the relationship cycle that you write about in your book, the performers and the audiences. And that really resonated with me on a on a few levels. Is that something that awareness can help us manage? Or are there other things we can do to get out of that so we can have deeper connections with the people we love? Awareness is a big part of it. Um, and you know, these things, by the way, right, they, they tend to build up over time. So the more years go by with this kind of, you know, you're together, but you're isolated, the more difficult it is to open up and be vulnerable because there's more things when you actually end up speaking from your heart are difficult for the other person to hear and to process together. So we have a communication uh, sort of tool called the 40-20-40. And you can imagine using this in dialogue with yourself, but it's easier to think about it between two people. And so the idea here is that you each get 40% of the share of the conversation and the relationship or the growth of the relationship gets at least 20%, you know, give or take. The idea here is to open up a space for dialogue. And the, the rules are we take turns speaking. We use a timer. Um, three minutes is typical. And the idea is that you're speaking from the heart and you're listening to understand rather than speaking to argue your point mm. and listening to prepare for your defense, right? Too many times it becomes like litigation. And, and the same sort of thing happens internally. You know, people talk about being self-critical and you get into this dialogue. And if you slow down and you pay attention to your inner dialogue, a lot of times it's kind of like a sadomasochistic, you know, punishing dialogue where people needed to drive themselves really hard when they were younger. And they're like, well, I needed to be tough on myself in order to survive. But now I'm just tough on myself and it's making me feel bad. And so the other tool we really talk about is compassionate empathy. And that works for oneself and others and find it very helpful for people to use something like mindful self-compassion, which uh, reflects the work of Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer um, and is a kind of a mindfulness-based compassion practice where you essentially cultivate compassion for yourself and others, and it rewires the brain, and it rewires the way we relate to other people. And that lays the foundation for that reflection, so that when you do kind of have that moment where you're like, okay, something needs to change, first of all, it's often the first of many aha moments, <laughs> but a lot of times there's that kind of big moment when you realize something it, it lays the framework for ongoing reparative work and opening up of possibilities. And so in our books, we use the acronym, the DREAM sequence for this, um, which stands for discovery, repair, empowerment, 
alternatives, meaning more choices, and mutuality, whether that mutuality is with another person or people, or whether it's sort of being more mutual with oneself, really creating that space for inner dialogue based in compassion. I, I love that dream. That, that's a good way for me to think about it in your book, the dream sequence. I really like that. And you said just a minute ago, listening to understand. That is something I've really had to work on. I love the work of Kristen Neff, but what you said is so true. If it's not a push and pull in my relationships, it's sometimes a push and pull within my own head. Why did I do that? Oh, you, that's okay. You have a right, no, you don't. You have, and, and it's exhausting, right? That takes me out of the good kind of crazy I want to be in where I'm creating and interacting and loving and all those things. I, I become so distracted by that push and pull in my head that I can't, I, I get blocked out by it almost. Right. That's like the internal song and dance routine. It's very repetitive. It's, it's kind of compelling in a way, right? People really get stuck on it. But eventually, you know, what I see is that people will say something like, I'm just sick of it, right? And then they're like, what do I do? And then that's really helpful to be not just compassionate, but also curious. And sometimes I'll say to people kind of like, okay, what if you embrace that self-critical part of you and kind of say, instead of like, leave me alone, like I hate, I hate hearing my own thoughts, you know? I'm making myself feel like, you know, feel like bad. Um, what if you say, hey, critical part of me, like what, what's wrong, you know, and mm. not the kind of snarky, like who hurt you? That <laughs> what you is your deal? <laughs> yeah. But really like inviting yourself, like, you know, I'm suffering, right? I'm criticizing myself. I'm being hard on myself. Like there's suffering here. What's really happening? Where is it coming from? And that goes back to what you said about reflecting, and, and recognition, right? Is there some end place we get, or can we start today kind of catching ourselves and, and talking to that critical self or, or doing the 40, 20, 40 exercise with our, our friends and our family members and, and feel progress immediately? Is it, is it an evolution or is there some end goal we need to go after to feel better? Yeah, I think it's kind of both and neither um, in a, you know, I know that's not very helpful. What I see over time is that people develop a different approach to themselves and others. And yeah, you can kind of backslide. People will notice, you know, hints of this. But when they start to notice that, they respond with more compassion and curiosity, and it kind of nips it in the bud. And then a lot of times before people get into these destructive repetitions, they'll notice it like beforehand. So what I usually see is people notice it afterward and then they kind of beat themselves up and then they notice it afterward and they learn to be more reflective about it and less critical and learn. And then they catch it closer and closer. And then sometimes there's a moment where people catch it while it's happening. And a lot of times that is one of these, like something changed. I noticed it while it was happening. And then after that, it gets a lot easier. And then later on, people learn to see it sort of coming, coming from the distance and head it off. Um, and then practicing these conversational approaches immediately is helpful. Even just having a timer, you know, that, you know, it gets painful listening to the other person. Let's say the other person is being critical. It's kind of nice to know that it's going to stop and then you can take it in. It doesn't get overwhelming. And then again, over time, it sinks in and you learn to have a different dialogue, whether it's in your own head or with other people. 
you know, in my own life, we did start using a timer for some of our bigger discussions because I was the person that was always planning my argument. I was listening to him and thinking about what I was going to say next. And, and he processes differently. So both of us agreed, yeah, this isn't constructive. And that, that alone was a really interesting exercise. Like, then I became very aware, how do I want to use my two minutes or three minutes to communicate what's essential to being in this relationship? Because that's what matters most, right? Getting, yeah. making it as good as we can and being connected in this. One thing I really was interested in, in your book is you write, we can't outthink our emotions. I try to outthink my emotions all the time. What do you mean by that? And what can we do instead when we're hit by those big feelings? Yeah, yeah, I, I like that idea too. And I'm glad you brought it up. I think we can learn to partner with our emotions. But a lot of times when people aren't comfortable with emotions, we try to intellectualize or rationalize. And so it ends up invalidating our own emotions. If you feel sad, you're sad. If you feel happy, you're happy. Now, you may not understand why you feel that way. A lot of times people say, I don't, I shouldn't feel sad, right? I just you know, won an award. I should be happy. If people have that kind of experience, then, then you have to look a little deeper. Um, wh why, why am I having a reaction that intellectually doesn't seem to fit? The other thing that I notice is people think um, intellectual processing speed is like way faster than emotional processing. And so like the, the intellect is like a rabbit that is like racing ahead and emotions for a lot of people, especially at, at first are, are more like a tortoise going a little slower and emotions just take more time. Um, you know, you can imagine anything, right? You, I can imagine sprouting wings and flying out of the window, you know, and circling the planet in the blink of an eye, you know, but it's not possible. And so we can also imagine that our emotions should be able to change immediately. And it just doesn't work that way. And so part of that relationship within oneself is cultivating a healthy relationship between your intellect and your emotions. Well, and another thing you write is that we can learn to accept both the good and the bad within us so that we can release some of the things, the defeating behaviors that are getting in our way. Is is that again, does that come down to, to noticing that and not judging ourselves in those moments? Or how can we get better if we're not, if we're not being a little critical and saying, knock that off, you don't need to behave that way. Th that's a conundrum for me. Well, you know, it's, it's good to take feedback. Um, but feedback also has to be framed in a way which can be useful. Um, there's an idea from my background in psychoanalysis, good me, bad me, and not me. And this is based on how anxious those experiences of oneself are. Good me is the stuff that you're totally fine with. Yeah, I went, I went to the gym today. Like, that's great. I'm smart. You know, I'm, I'm, I like, I'm good at writing, you know, good me. Bad me is the stuff where we kind of think that we're being honest with ourselves and we are, but it's like, okay, sometimes I can be irritable. I get it. The not me stuff those are the things where we have a lot more trouble um, recognizing if we're doing something that's really problematic. Hey, am I sometimes abusive? Like I, that's not me. I'm, you know, but other people are giving me this feedback um, or it might be, Hey, I'm, I'm really, really talented. I'm, I'm not as awful as I think I am. And so I think by making, I say it's kind of hand wavy, but making room for those parts of oneself, 
um, the good, the bad, the ugly, um, maybe that's ableist in some way, or the good me, the bad me, the toxic parts of myself. That's tricky. I don't think that's right for everyone at any given moment. A lot of times dealing with the most painful and difficult parts of oneself is more of a process over time. And some people, this goes back to the question about like intellect or thinking going faster than emotions. Some people try to force themselves to deal with difficult experiences or trauma too fast. Um, and it it can backfire because it, it can basically kind of trigger reactions that are negative. And so I think compassion is really handy there. And, you know, if necessary, working with someone to help pace that process of self-discovery and healing. Yeah, um, that was my next question. Like, how do we start on this? Self-compassion, compassion for others is huge. You touched on curiosity. Curiosity, I feel like it's a superpower for me. It can pull me out of this weirdo rumination into something like, huh, I wonder why that's happening or that's interesting. Yep. In a totally different frame. I think I'm a huge fan of therapy. I've been helped a lot by good people in my life to understand how I'm working. And that goes to curiosity too, right? You have to be willing, curious to learn. Where else can we turn today if we're listening to this? What's the first thing we can do after the show to start this process of understanding? You know, if people have found this an interesting, useful or thought provoking or emotional discussion, take a few minutes and write down some notes about what is meaningful for you and what are some of the things you might want to inquire into further. That's useful. And while you're doing that, pick up Dr. Grant Brenner's book, also co-written with Mark Borg and Daniel Berry. It's called Making Your Crazy Work for You, From Trauma and Isolation to Self-Acceptance and Love. I got a lot out of it. I'm still thinking about pieces of it and we'll be coming back to it. So I think it's worth checking out. Dr. Grant Brenner, where else can we find your other work? And if people want to consult with you or have you speak, how can we get in touch? Okay, for speaking consultation, uh, my website is grantHbrennerMD.com. And then you can find me on Instagram at grantHbrennerMD, where I showcase a lot of my photography. Um, and my blog on psychology today called Experimentations with a capital M also has a lot of my writing and thinking about this and related subjects. Fantastic. And you can find me at polycampbell.substack.com. If you want to join the Simply Said community there where we go a little deeper into some of these things, I'll have uh, Dr. Grant Brenner's links and stuff there. You can find my blog on psychology today. It's called Imperfect Spirituality. And check out my website, polycampbell.com. And remember, get curious. Give yourself some compassion and some space to feel things, think things, start understanding your humanity and how we can work through this. Get the help you need, pick up the books, start this process of reflection and growth. Because I think when we all do that, we will all live well, do good and be happy. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. 
Hi, I'm Lessa Gaudet, host of Her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Electric acid.